At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Lamentations chapter 1. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Today we enter one of the most profound puzzles of the Christian life. Enduring affliction while your face and presence are dim. We ask how long, O Lord, and we trust our Savior but tears still stream down our faces and comfort eludes us. So guide us in this series. Touch our pain. Heal us in the deepest places and lift high the tender, trustworthy name of Jesus, a man of many sorrows and acquainted with grief. So Lord, come. Spirit, come, comfort your people. Come teach us this deep and important truth. In Christ's beautiful name we pray, amen. Lamentations 1, verse 1. How lonely sits this city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who is great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The word of the Lord. For the last 10 months, I've been grieving. I've been grieving the death of my mother. As most of you know, she went to glory on July 9th, 2020. She had a degenerative illness that took her rather swiftly. Now, this kind of grief is a new experience for me. People who I had cared about had died prior to mom, but no one like her. Her presence in my life was towering. And I don't just mean physically. We lived in different countries for many years. I mean psychologically, I mean emotionally, there was no one like her. As a child, I would, you know, when my soccer team had a, a win, I would bring it to mom uh, with pride. When I was studying the Bible and becoming a Christian, feeling the enormity of what was happening in me, I brought it to mom for reassurance. When I was contemplating coming back into ministry, and leaving behind my engineering firm, I brought it to mom for counsel. And she said in her inimitable way, of course, you're wasting your life with that company. 
I'm like, geez, mom, so blunt, you know, so blunt. I know this is answering many questions for many of you, you know. The therapist among you are like, so that's where he gets his bluntness in preaching. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I should have told you that story five years ago. But in truth, I've been mourning her, her loss longer than 10 months. Because for the last two years of her life, she was not the same person. The illness progressively took away all her faculties. But death made it all final. Final. And so the absence of such a towering figure leaves a cavernous hole. It has. And as I've been grieving her loss, there are two main emotions I've experienced, gratitude and sadness. I've been so grateful to God for her, but also so grateful to her for all, all that she did for me. She did so much for me. Her imprint is all over my life and who I am, as my family reminds me. But also sadness. Sad, you know, sadness because of the, the moments we won't get to share the things she won't get to see in my children and life. But also sadness for her life. She had a very difficult life. Lots of suffering, much of which happened long before I was born. Much of it, I don't even know. Now, don't lose any sleep over my sadness. I am working with a counselor. Um, but pray for me. I will always take your prayers. Um, so grief, it's not comfortable. It's not fast. It can be debilitating, but also purifying. And it's something that we as a culture don't do well. And so hearing well a book like Lamentations would be nearly impossible in our everything is awesome culture. The pandemic, however, has for over a year now begun to prepare us to take this journey. This is going to be a, an intense journey, I think, for, for all of us, definitely many of us. For the first time in living memory, the, the pandemic has been preparing us because for the First time in living memory, we who pride ourselves in being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want to, were faced with the reality of our own impotence and limitations. Everything was disturbed. Theaters closed, restaurants closed, churches closed. Instead of stadiums full of fans that were full of Coast Guard administering vaccines by the thousands, don't ever forget that picture. Weddings and funerals were postponed. Funerals, how do you postpone a funeral? It becomes a memorial at that point. Over 3.3 million people have died globally. The U.S. having the highest case and death toll. One positive effect of COVID is that it's brought home for all of us a deeper reality than the everything is awesome life we've come to expect. And that deeper reality is suffering. Suffering. Suffering will visit all of us through many different paths. Some of it will come through your own folly, your own doing. 
Some of it will come to you because of doing good, because you're bearing the name of Christ. Some of it will come through hurt or evil done by others to you. Some of it will come simply because we live in a fallen world and in a fallen world, we will always experience loss of many kinds. And so when suffering comes into our lives, we grieve. But do we know how to grieve well? It's why we're calling this series Good Morning, taking our sorrows to the Savior. We don't know how to mourn good. Well, we've been so conditioned in our culture that life should go from strength to strength to strength. We should go from awesome to even more awesome to more awesome. And when that's not what life brings to us, and it won't, then many people can feel like failures at work, in their marriage, in their relationships. And they can do very extreme things, even taking their own lives. Our God has something far healthier and so much more gracious for us, which is why we have this short but potent, potent book in Scripture, Lamentations. So I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready to take this journey. Because here's the thing, listen to me. You do not need an expensive car. You do not need a four-bedroom house, but you do need to know how to deal with suffering. And Lamentations is your friend. Let me situate us. The kingdom of Judah went into exile in 587 BC, so almost 600 years before Jesus was born. They went into exile following centuries of unfaithfulness to God and God's covenant. The Torah had outlined the curses that would fall upon Israel if they continued in their disobedience. The prophets had been warning them for centuries that the day of God's judgment was coming, but Israel did not listen. And so God came in wrath against his people. And he came in wrath by sending in Babylon a wicked and strong nation. That's all there was, only wicked nations. He sends Babylon and they come and they conquer Israel and kill the men, rape many women, raise the city, desecrate the temple and exile the survivors to Babylon, away from the land. And so the poet who's writing this book, it could have been Jeremiah, we don't fully know, the book doesn't tell us, but the author of the book is writing from that experience of total and profound devastation that has come over God's people. So I want you to think of him sitting in the streets of the holy city, smoke going up, rubble and burnt houses all around him. That's the vantage point from which he writes to us. The worst of COVID is a hiccup compared to the total loss of national identity and gruesome suffering and the shame that had come over God's people. The poet here personifies Israel as a woman. And in the first verses, he speaks of the reversal of her fortunes. How could this happen? 
How could this happen? Lamentation 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. So first there's a reversal of status. The city used to be full of people, but now it sits lonely, desolate. Like a widow, the city no longer is great among the nations. Now the image of a widow brings to mind the husband. Where is her husband? She who was a princess is now a slave. So this is Cinderella in reverse. This is no rags to riches, but riches to rags. Verse two, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. So now we have a reversal of expectations. As she weeps bitterly in the night, there is no one to comfort her. We're going to see that just about in every chapter. There's no one to comfort her. Her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. With tears on her cheeks, her lovers offer no comfort. Lovers. So she is a widow and she had lovers. Remember that. Verse 3. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So now we have a reversal of history. You remember back in Egypt, God had seen Israel's affliction and hard labor, and he had moved with a strong hand to move them out of that land into a place of rest and wholeness and safety. But because they repeatedly, and I mean for centuries, had broken their covenant with him, God now takes them to affliction and hard labor and restlessness. So instead of pulling them out of oppression, as he did in the Exodus with the exile, he sends them back into it. Listen to a portion of God's warnings to his people in Deuteronomy 28. And I encourage you to read that whole chapter later this week. These are some of God's warnings to them through Moses. They had these words for over 800 years. Here's what God had said through Moses. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And so all of those warnings had now come off the pages of the Torah and become their reality. Verse 4. The roads to Zion mourn. For none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. 
her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. So after drawing our attention to the reversal of status and expectation in history, the prophet now speaks, or the poet, prophet, now speaks of the emptiness in the city. He says, the roads, the roads to Zion mourn. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. But not just Jerusalem geographically, no. Jerusalem in majesty. The apex of God's creation. But the roads are mourning. Why? Because the streets are empty. There's no one coming. Thousands upon thousands of people are not coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals, the festival of Passover, the festival of weeks, the festival of boots, where multitudes would just be bustling in the streets, so excited, joys of, of songs of joy. They're singing as they're coming to celebrate their God. They're empty, they are silent. There were many articles written last year about the eerie feeling that came over so many great cities in America, cities like New York, that overnight became ghost towns, weeks on end in the thick of the pandemic lockdown. And so people were mourning the emptiness, the silence in the streets that previously had been bustling with live and crowded. In verse 5, we begin to hear why this devastating reversal and emptiness has taken place. Why do her enemies prosper? Verse 5, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Now listen to me. Many times we suffer, but we've done nothing wrong. And you need to know that. That's a very true and big category for us. That was not the case for Jerusalem right here at the time of the exile. If you want to understand the wickedness, how wicked and how out of control the kingdom of Judah had become, read the prophet Jeremiah. Just read it. It's long, but it's powerful. You're going to see the warning after warning after warning that God sent to his people and how they refused from the top down to obey. It will help you understand Lamentations because this book is going to get really, really hard. Now the poet draws our attention to the shame and loss that the city mourns. Verse 7. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. There is so much that Jerusalem has lost. The poet says all the precious things that used to be theirs in days gone by. Things like the privilege 
of being in a covenant relationship with the maker of heaven and earth. Things like the gift of the Torah, the gift of the land, things like the history of God's blessing over the nation. I mean, think of the 10 plagues. Think of crossing the Red Sea as on dry ground. Think of manna from heaven for 40 years. Think of the sun standing still under Joshua. Think of David's victory over Goliath. All these things, all these precious things that were lost. Things like the temple and its worship, the annual festivals and the celebrations, her priests, her kings, her prophets. I've sat in my office with spouses who've wrecked their marriages and they mourn. And I comforted them as they mourn all the precious things that used to be theirs but are now lost. What did I do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve this? Look at verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honor her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The poet has personified Jerusalem as a widow, as a princess turned slave, as an unfaithful wife. And now he begins to show us the added shame of public exposure. I'm going to read you what a commentator says about this. Now remember that this is, we're talking about customs and culture in, ancient, in the ancient Near East about 2,500 years ago. It's important for you to have the his, historic reference historical reference. Here's what one commentator says about these verses. In the surrounding cultures, a woman caught in adultery could be publicly shamed by having her skirts pulled up to expose her genital nakedness in public before an even worse fate awaited. The poet here implies an excruciating irony. The lovers of verse 2, remember we read about them in verse 2? The lovers of verse 2, with whom the city woman had indulged in promiscuity, now humiliate her with mockery as she suffers the exposure inflicted on her as punishment for her infidelity. So painful is this unbearable public torture that the woman herself cannot even bear to look up, but groans and turns away, shrinking from the agony of her naked shame. In the midst of all this agony and shame, there is no one, no one to comfort her. Now, up until now, the voice that we've been hearing in the poem is the author's voice, who's been narrating this trage tragedy to us. But now at the end of verse 9, for the first time in the poem, the woman herself interrupts the poet and she says at the end of verse 9, O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. From the depths of her grief and pain, she, she, this city woman begs God. Maybe it was just a, a faint whimper for God to not forget her. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for my enemy has triumphed. O oh God, look. Isn't that the cry 
of faith from someone who knows God personally, but is in the midst of intense suffering. Oh Lord, look and see how long. Verse 10. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. So two other unthinkable things are mentioned. First, the, na- the nations have entered into the sanctuary. This is the, this is the temple into which no one who is not Jewish was allowed to go into and into the most holy place of the temple, no one could go except the high priest and he but once a year. But now these foreign nations that do not know God have desecrated it. They've come into the sanctuary. This is a symbol of subjugation by the conquering nation. This is a taunt. What they're saying is our gods defeated your God. And then the other thing that the poet talks about is famine, famine. And we're going to see this in many places throughout the poem. But basically, in, in siege warfare, food supplies were cut short, and people began to do some horrible things in search for food. And then at the end of verse 11, Lady Zion speaks again, asking God essentially the same thing. Look, O Lord, and see. God, do you see? God, do you see? You see, now we have the second half of the first poem. This book has five poems in these five chapters. But now we get to the second half of the first poem. And now the widow, the princess turned slave, the unfaithful wife speaks. And there's some amazing things that we can learn as she speaks from her grief and agony. So this is the bereft widow speaking. She takes the mic, so to speak. Verse 12, she says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. The prophets had warned of the terrible day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in the prophetic literature was a day when God would come in power, in judgment, against all the wicked nations that surrounded Israel, that oppressed Israel through the centuries, and God would bring his judgment upon them, and Israel would rejoice. That was the day of the Lord. Except that beginning with the prophet Amos, the prophets begin to 
prophesy and warn that the terrible day of the Lord will also come upon Israel for their transgressions. And it would not be a day of light. It would be a day of darkness. And so here, Lady Zion speaks of the sorrow the Lord inflicted on her on the day of his fierce anger. That's what that's talking about, the day of God's wrath. In other words, what she's saying here is that day that the prophets prophesied about, warmed me about for centuries has finally come upon me. But I want you to listen carefully to the voice that's speaking here because the poet in the voice of the widow could have said this. He could have narrated this episode, this hard episode from the perspective of the woman herself. He could have said, fire was set on me and net was spread for my feet. I was stunned. I was faint. My neck was put in a yoke. I was rejected. I was crushed. He could have said it like that. Or he could have narrated the warfare putting the, pl- the focus on Babylon, the army that invaded Israel. So he could have said, they set fire on me. They spread a net around my, for my feet. They stunned me and left me faint. They rejected me. They put a neck, a, a, a yoke around my neck. They crushed me. Either one of those could have conveyed the message. That's not what scripture say, says, is it? Read with me carefully those verses again. Listen to how Lady Zion in pain says that God, God did this. Look at verse 13. From on high, he, God, sent fire. Into my bones, he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke by his hand. They were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. You see, Israel knows that God warned that the day of his wrath would come if she persisted in her unfaithfulness and wickedness. She did. And so his wrath came. She's not confused as to why she sits desolate and ashamed. But the sorrow is great. The guilt is great. The lamentation is great. Verse 16, for these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comfort is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. And now the author, the poet, interjects here again. Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. Do you see her? Do you see her sitting in shame and pain on the streets, rubble, houses burned down. She's in ashes. She's stretching out her hands. There's no one to comfort. Do you see her? The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbor should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. Then the woman Israel speaks again. Verse 18, the Lord is in the right For I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. 
I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. Do you hear the pain? Do you know what lament allows us to do? Lament allows us to honestly ask God the hard questions. Someone who wrote on this book defined lament in this way. He says, a lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. That's so good. A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament is in the Bible as your permission to go to God in those moments when your emotions, when your pain and confusion are the strongest and to bring your complaint to God. That's why it's in the Bible. Lament is not you speaking years later with the advantage of time on your side and perspective and healing and even joy restored because blessing has come. No, lament is what you say to God when you find out you lost your baby, when you find out your spouse was unfaithful, when you find out the cancer is terminal, when you find out the doctors could not save your loved one. What do you do then? When the emotion is so intense, it engulfs you and threatens to make you lose your mind. What do you do when the pain runs so deep that you feel it'd be better to die? The answer is lament. You turn to God. You take your complaint to God and make him hear you. A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Church, if we do not have a well-defined category for this, we will not know how to process grief well. Listen to me. When we're feeling intense pain, we are extremely vulnerable. It is here in the valley of affliction that many marriages are destroyed, that many people turn to alcohol and drugs and work and other destructive vices. It is here in the valley of affliction that many people begin to believe lies, lies about who they are, who God is, what really matters in life. We must grieve well. And this entire biblical book, Lamentations, is here to be our teacher. It is raw, it is hard, it is not all neat and tied up in a nice, neat package, ribbons and all. No, for the next five weeks, we're going to see intense suffering. We're gonna see it because Lamentations makes us see it. 
and the grief that comes with it because God wants us to be done once and for all with this everything is awesome fake facade that we think we're supposed to present to him and to everyone else. Aren't you sick of that? Listen, I know this is cultural. I know we all do it. I did it after I preached this sermon out there, but we all do it. Someone will come to us and say, hey, how are you doing? Awesome. How's everything? Everything is awesome. No, no. Lamentations is here to tell us that if we are honest, we know that everything is not awesome. Children are starving. Nations are blowing each other up. Many blacks and whites in our cities cannot find compassion for each other. And I'm talking about many black Christians and white Christians cannot find compassion for each other. No, everything is not awesome. We're unable to trust our leaders. We're unable to say anything kind about our enemies. We're unable to point the finger at ourselves. Everything is not awesome. Our marriages struggle. Our children hurt and push parents away. Our precious relationships are fragile. You guys, life is hard. And if you're a Christian, you know that God is good. And that's what lament allows us to hold together the goodness of God and the hardship of life. And when we bring our pain in prayer to God, do you know what happens? Our pain finds a voice and it reaches the only one who can heal it. And he can heal it because on the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ holds together the goodness of God and the hardship of life. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of humankind. It's what the cross does. What do you think Jesus did on the cross? He didn't say, my God, my God, everything is awesome. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a lament. That's a lament. That's what Jesus does on the cross. What this lady Zion is saying on the streets of destroyed Jerusalem. All her affliction came upon her because of her sin. All of his affliction came upon him on the cross because of our sin. And so he laments. He laments. He's a man of many sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's what he does on the cross. He speaks out of agony and pain, but also full of trust. Did you hear it? My God, my God, there's the trust. Why have you forsaken me? There's the pain. In lament, you will come to know and understand your Savior in ways that nothing else will teach you. Sweet ways, 
deep ways, hardship transforming ways. And so my prayer and hope is that you will open yourselves up to this category of the Christian life. Here's why. You do not have to go looking for suffering. Suffering will find you. And when it does, lament is your closest friend. Let's pray. Our God, how deep the Father's love for us. How deep the Son's love for us. How deep the Spirit's love for us. Father, I pray for my people, your people, as we mourn. We mourn racial tensions on our streets. We mourn political distrust. We mourn economic inequality rising. We mourn global conflicts, children without water, people without food, villages without medicine. We mourn the blackness of our own hearts. We mourn that we put the Son of God, the pure, holy, perfect Son of God through so much grief as He bore upon His body our sins. Father, you know that life is hard. Jesus, you know that life is hard. But we also know that you are good. And so we ask you to teach us to suffer well. Sometimes, Lord, we suffer because of our own folly, our own doing. Sometimes we suffer because we're doing good. We're bearing your name. suffer because of the hurt or evil of others. We suffer because we live in a fallen world and loss will find us. So Father, thank you. Thank you for this hard and raw short poem. Teach us us to learn to mourn, to bring our sorrow to you. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.